praise God. Hallelujah. Come on, let's let's worship him just a little bit. Can we do that? Hallelujah, hallelujah, such an abundance of these meetings and you hear such good reports about them on my neighbor meeting. It's a flow and an anointing of God and God and God and Sometimes my concern is thinking about this all morning. Scripture says it's not to be hearers of the word. And not hearers. We shouldn't just be hearers of the word. And, and I understand the format and how we do things and all that. And at times, Because we're trying to get so much in in such a short amount of time, it, it means that each one of us becomes responsible to do whatever's necessary to take the word to preach. And I don't know what they did 50 years ago, 70 years ago, 2,000 years ago. But we have the opportunity to take statements like this, not memorize them. Take them to find private place and time. Hear them over again without any schedule, any obligation. Just let this become a part of us so that we're not just hearers, but we are doers. Somehow, you know, if you do anything on the internet, you know, you can bookmark something in favor. Somehow, the Holy Ghost needs to bookmark certain messages. And that we become committed to revisit that message as often as necessary for it to change us. Amen. Inspiration affects the heart, and we are addicted to inspiration. But life is changed in the mind. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Which may prove what is that good and 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 the inspiration comes and says, This is right. The Holy Ghost bears witness with our spirit says, This is right. This is God. I need this. But because we don't revisit this frequently. That message that struck such a chord in our heart, 
with such an answer. We don't give it an opportunity to change our minds and therefore our lives are changed because of course repentance isn't directly connected to the heart except in traditional Pentecost. But the word translated repent means to change your mind, to change your direction. That's what the Greek word means. It has nothing to do with emotion. Praise God. So let, let's just wait just a minute here before I, I don't have a different direction. It will seem like a different direction. I get into this, you'll see that the Lord is always in these meetings, just lays a foundation, just line upon line, precept upon precept, because He takes us where He's trying to go in these meetings. And, uh, but we, we, we need to just close our eyes here. We need to just listen to the voice of the Spirit speaking to us personally, individually. And, and you know, it's a, it, it is, it is, tragedy for any of us to say that can't happen to me because I've seen this happen to men I've never dreamed it would happen men of such stature in my eyes men that I respected so much that I never dreamed that they could even ever make this kind of mistake I'm sorry to tell you brothers and sisters this can happen this can happen to me. This can happen to any of us. And it's happened to a whole lot more of us than we ever found out about. Because you see, God covers sin. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. When God deals with a man and he repents, truly repents, God will cover that sin. He'll cover it for a long time. When, when you tell something you know about somebody, you're participating with the spirit of Satan because you're uncovering something God tried to cover. God covers sin. The tale needs to end with you and then you're being a child of God. God covers sin. How in the world do any of us ever survive? How would we survive if God made known every sin He's ever forgiven us? If He made it all public, none of us would have any credibility. You wouldn't want to listen to me today if you knew the stuff I've been through. One more time. Give the Lord an opportunity here. It's an opportunity. In Jesus' name. Saturate our being with your spirit and your word today, Lord. Saturate our being with your spirit and your word today, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Jesus name Jesus name I'm going to go on 
because I know that I'm not really changing the direction of the Spirit and I can flow with what the Lord's doing here because it's the direction He's given me. Uh, in fact, as I listen to Brother Jeff up today, he and I have worked together a lot. Uh, I heard things that I haven't given to say. And I'm going to repeat them. I'm not repeating them. I was given them to say the Holy Ghost is repeating. It'll be a little different context, but the same message. We're going someplace. Okay? Praise God. Uh, just as a starting point, if we could, please, I'd like to return to Second Peter chapter 1. Let me read just a little bit here. Can please? Excuse me. Yes, Second Peter chapter 1. Just for time's sake, I'm going to jump in the middle of something here. Verse 4. Whereby are given unto us, uh, sorry, verse 3. According as his divine power hath given us, given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Called to glory and virtue. I looked up that Greek word again this morning just to make sure that what being accurate virtue is goodness, especially moral goodness, character. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. And because of the rules of redundancy, the word add is only mentioned once, but it is in this verse eight times. I'm going to read it. I'm going to supply it the other seven times for emphasis, even though it's absent, except according to the rules of grammar of redundancy. So just to make a point, let me do this. Verse 5 again, and besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and add to virtue knowledge, and add to knowledge temperance, and add to temperance patience, and add to patience godliness, and add to godliness brotherly kindness, and add to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, possible for them to be in you, but not abound. So after I've added them all, I'm not through. I then seek for them to be in individually in me in abundance. Why? Because if these things be in you and abound, they make you, they make you, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. The title, I think, prepared for this, is something along the line of building the foundation for end time harvest. 
Praise God. You may be seated. God bless you. lived under a false assumption understanding life for several years in fact most of my life being born on the UPC pew I literally of course my mother did thank God and that is that truth saves you if you're under the impression that truth saves you you're wrong Truth, oh, you can have all the truth you want and go to hell. You can live a moral life. You can be a good person. You can be faithful to God. You can attend church faithfully. You can never disobey authority and go to hell. Why? Because Proverbs says, where there is no vision, the people perish. Truth without vision cannot save you. Now, do we really have to start out in contention so quickly? Are you really going to struggle with what I have to say this quickly? Does the Bible say that? Do we believe that it's not any individual verse that saves us, but the entire word that saves us? We acknowledge that the chapters and verse divisions were made by man, not God. So I cannot take a particular sentence out of context and say this is what saves me. Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21 saves me. So in that context, it is just as valid for me to say that you can't be saved without being baptized in Jesus' name as it is for me to say you're going to go to hell without a vision. Conversely, it's just as valid for me to say if you've been baptized in Jesus' name and have no vision, you're going to go to hell. That's exactly what he was talking about today. The reason so many fall in so many churches that have truth and teach that truth devotedly is because truth without vision can't keep you saved. And vision isn't going to church faithfully. That's not vision. Vision is not living holy. Vision is not paying your tithes. All of that has to do with truth. This is why we struggle with churches that don't preach the truth but are huge. Vision, truth saves the individual. Vision reaches the world. People without truth but with vision reach people. People with truth, with no vision, make excuses. You can go to hell just as easily in a church with truth and no vision 
as you can in a church with vision with no truth. It is no more correct to condemn a large church with vision but no truth than it is to justify a truth, a small church with truth and no vision. Now I'm not talking about these old missionaries. I'm still a old missionary. I started. We started with two people 32 years ago. I feel more a home missionary today than I do anything else. I'm not talking about it. I'm talking about a church that still runs 25 after 50 years. Or 100 after 50 years. Now you're jumping on the little guy. Let me tell you something. The size of my church has nothing to do with my waistline, my coat size, or the size hat I wear. I'm not a little guy or a big guy based on the size of my church. That's carnality. Only carnality judges people by the size of their church. So we're not talking about little guys and big guys. We're talking about vision. Where there's no vision, people perish. People perish. Ooh. The problem is, we need to be Christians. And the definition of being a Christian, because the word was never used by Christ, is being Christ-like. And when I examine the ministry of Jesus, I find that he spent an equal, maybe even a greater amount of time, preparing for what was coming than meeting immediate needs of those he ministered to. Yes, he spent occasions healing the sick, healing everybody, casting out devils. He did that on occasion. He spent occasions where he ministered to thousands of people. But his focus was preparation for what was coming. And he probably gave more hours to preparing the leaders to take care of what was go- he was going to do than he did simply ministering to the needs of people and keeping them safe. Oh God. I really thought this was going to flow slow so positively and all of a sudden you know, we were just kind of struggling with me here. Okay. Let's, uh, let me see if I can get you back on my team here. We, uh, we're really hard on ourselves because we think salvation is an event. We don't know that it's a process. Hallelujah. Salvation is not an event. It is a process. I don't care how long you've had the Holy Ghost. You're still in the process of being saved. Salvation is not an event. It's a process. And Satan uses the word against us by putting expectations upon us that we cannot meet. I'm supposed to love you. According to our expectations, I'm supposed to love you from the moment I get the Holy Ghost. 
that Peter didn't know anything about. I'm supposed to love the lost from the moment I get the Holy Ghost. Peter didn't know anything about that either. Now those two towers that fell almost a, month, a year ago were designed to withstand the impact of a Boeing 707 crash. And they did not, and they did their job. They did not fall. They were built very carefully. But the people that crashed those planes correctly calculated that planes with full loads of fuel would create such an intense heat. No amount of steel, no kind of steel could resist the steel. So instead of falling, timber, they collapsed. Why did they withstand? You think of it. Have you ever been up one of those times? I have. And to have an airplane traveling a couple hundred miles an hour. As large as those air, airplanes are, and to crash into that building, it creates such a moment of force for that thing to stand. That is amazing. It stood because of its foundation. There's a lot of failures that take place in our lives that have nothing to do with our interest, intent, desire, love for God. There's a lot of failures that have taken place in our lives because we just have bypassed parts of the foundation. So since I've bypassed the parts of the foundation, I may experience certain things in my life on occasion, but I don't have a foundation sufficient to sustain that consistently in my life. And I can berate myself because I love you 90% of the time, but sometimes I can't stand you kind of deal. And say, what's wrong with me? And I can work on my love for the lost or my love for the brother when the, really the problem is I, it, I have failed because the foundation, something that was supposed to be of the found, part of the foundation to support that in my life is not there. So if I want to have agape love, which is translated charity there in King James, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, whatever, 5, whatever it is. If I, if I want to have agape love, that is built on the foundation of brotherly kindness or filio, loving you. I can't love those I haven't seen if I can't love those I do see. I can't love those that hate my God if I don't first love those that do love my God. So the foundation of agape love is brotherly kindness. Well, the foundation of brotherly kindness is godliness. This is God-consciousness or God-towardness. It's having a mind and a life that is focused on God the great majority of the time. So if I'm failing to love you, it's re the real problem is I'm failing to have close intimate fellowship with God.
Well, here's where it gets touchy. If I'm struggling with my God consciousness, meaning my mind is on natural things most of the time, my spirit and emotions are involved in natural things most of the time, then the real problem is, I don't have patience, which the Greek word is hupomony, which is endurance, perseverance. I'm inconsistent. Well, if I'm struggling with inconsistency, it's because I don't have the foundation of, of persistence or endurance, which is difference. Self-control. Control of my appetite. The ones that are sin and the ones that aren't. Except when I don't have control of them. So I may be struggling with love. I think I'm struggling with love. I'm not struggling with love. I'm struggling somewhere down in the foundation. I mean, there's, it, it, well, oh, I'm, maybe I'm struggling with love for my brother. Or maybe the reason I'm struggling with love for my brother is I'm struggling with my God towardness, my godliness. Or, if it, or maybe I'm struggling with my endurance, my consistency. Or maybe I'm struggling with my self-control. And the reason I'm struggling with my self-control is I'm struggling with lack of knowledge. I study to preach, I don't study to know. I study the Word of God because I want to grow in the Word. I study the Word of God because I need to preach because that's how I get my paycheck. So because I don't know, I can't have self-control. Well, then I struggle with knowledge because I struggle with virtue. Why would I want to know about God if I don't have virtue, morality? Because the more I know about God, the more condemnation I feel. So I avoid God because I really am I, I can't stand myself because of the way I do it. Of course, the reason I don't have virtue is I don't really have faith. And, and the terminology is very plain. It's very obvious. Mean, it's not. It's not some deep revelation. It's very plain. Giving all diligence. Add to your faith. Virtue. And to your virtue, knowledge. And to your knowledge, self-control. And to your self-control, endurance. And to your endurance, God-consciousness. To your God-consciousness, brotherly kindness. To your brotherly kindness, love. And we beat ourselves up, and sometimes... I, I'm not I'm sure no other preacher has ever done this, but I have. I beat up my people and pastor because they don't love one another. But the problem is I skipped over all of that stuff I should have been teaching them and making it important in their lives because I wanted to get right to the reach of the lost stuff. And then I wonder why we have seasons of revival but can't, can't sustain it. Because there's, it's a foundation problem. God cannot give me what I don't have foundation to support. 
it will only last a short amount of time. And then I beat myself up as, uh, what, what's wrong with us that we can't keep revival going? It's not a question of keeping revival going. God gives you just enough of it so you can get a taste of it, so you'll get a desire to do whatever's necessary to have it sustained. But it's not sustained because He's not going to build a, a, a skyscraper on footers poured on sand. So therefore, the question is, when I stand up pulpit and preach, is there a purpose for the preaching? Am, am I consciously aware that I'm working on an element of the foundation It doesn't matter how large the community, how large the church, how large the number of people you do. There's no such thing as just a little church. Every time we get together, there's supposed to be something done that is perfecting or adding something that's lacking in people's lives to prepare the foundation. To have and to be able to sustain in time worldwide apostolic revival. Now this is the principle. The reason I've covered this part of it is I wanted to establish the principle. The principle of building and the more the, the greater the building, the more elaborate the foundation the deeper you have to go down with it. You know, there's three that abide, faith, hope, and charity, and the greatest of these is charity. You think God does the greatest thing He does on the ground? That's the pinnacle. That's the peak. That's, that's the, the ultimate. You don't get to the ultimate the moment you speak in tongues. There's some work and growth that has to go on to get there. That's why the last words of the Apostle Peter to the church was, grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What is he talking about? Even after there's faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control and endurance and God-consciousness and loving my brother and loving those that don't love me or God and or God, even all, after all that is in, in my life, I still will have times that I will be I will fall and be unfruitful and barren because they're not abounding in me yet. They're not abounding. They may be there. In science they call some things trace elements. You see the new nutritional information on some of the stuff we eat? They give you percentages of daily allowances and then in the bottom they, they, they list these trace elements. Means this is there, but there's not enough of it to, to make any impact in your being. Just just trace stuff here. Just trace amounts of vitamin C and whatever. Just trace. Hallelujah. 
So the question is this. Is this stuff in you? Is this stuff about you? So the foundation in my personal life for love is all this other stuff. Now, let's talk about the foundation of end time hearts. You'd like to go to Second Chronicles chapter 7. Actually, I'd like to you read verse 12. You get up and out of that. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 12. This water mine. Second Chronicles chapter seven, verse twelve. And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night, said unto him, I have heard thy prayer, and have chosen this place to myself for a house of sacrifice. Next verse. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now, this is... Uh, no, stay on verse 14. If you don't mind. This is the foundation... The foundational elements to end time harvest. So we'll start at the end and work back. And I will say this to you. The last thing says that he will heal our heal their land. What is he talking about? Heal their land. Land that is not fruit producing needs heal. So Healed land is a land that's producing a harvest. So in a New Testament context, healed land is an end time harvest of souls. So that's the that's where we want to get to. That's the pinnacle. I'm not talking about church growth. I have very good friends who, who work really hard to help grow churches. And that's wonderful. And everybody wants their church to grow. Revival and harvest is not the same thing as church growth. Sorry, it's not the same thing. In fact, you can have church growth in a carnal church as carnal as it can be. You're just a good promoter and you got good programs and you can motivate people to participate. You can grow a church that's as carnal as possible. Now, you have to make a choice somewhere in your life, somewhere in your ministry, between church growth and revival at heart. Because you can't get... There are two different destinations, and you can't get to the same... You can't... You, 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 it's, it's two different ideas and two different approaches. In church growth, you promote the church, you promote the program, you promote the uh, you promote the pastor, you promote the people and what's available, you promote the choir, you promote the self-help groups, you promote yourself. But in revival and harvest, Jesus said, except a grain of wheat fall on the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. So in church growth, you're promoting self. 
And hopefully people will get to Jesus somehow after they get to you. Or in revival and harvest, you are crucifying self and promoting Jesus. Hallelujah. So, uh, that being said, if you could stay with me, please, for 2 Chronicles 7 14. I just want to say that. Uh, we'll keep coming back to that too if I can keep doing that first. Okay. So, the ultimate is harvest, an end time harvest. Now, in church growth, you have to deal with people primarily individually. And, that, and that's, that's it's, uh, it's uh, hook and line fishing, it's the elaborate lure, the skill of the fisherman, it's the hunt, it's the, the thrill, it's knowing the right spot, the right time of day, the right death, all that stuff. And I don't know that's not all that stuff. I'm not but in harvest, uh, it's big boats with uh, booms and nets. And the difference is in church growth, you have to find somebody's need and somehow meet that need to get them into your building and continue to meet that need to keep them on your seat. But the difference with the harvest is the only thing you have to do to get harvested is be in the spot where the net's passing through. You don't have to be hungry. You don't have to be looking for God. Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a net. Fishing. Matthew chapter 13. That's what it says. End time harvest is net fishing. It's net fishing. And then what do you do? You get the net to shore, and then you begin to throw away the bad, keep the good. Because in net fishing and end time harvest, there's going to be a lot of people come into the kingdom, get baptized, get the Holy Ghost, that aren't going to stay. And it's the same thing with wheat harvesting. You go into the harvest field, you have a sickle scythe, you cut down all the sheaves, you bring the sheaves to the threshing floor, you thresh the wheat, you winnow it, you sift it, and in the winnowing process after the threshing, because the chaff has been separated from the wheat in the winnowing process, uh, in the threshing process, the, win- the, the, the threshed wheat or fresh sheaves are tossed up in the air by Jesus. He is the winner of it, purging His floor. And the winds of false doctrine and persecution and temptation blows the chaff off the threshing floor and the wheat falls back down at the feet of winter. So in, in, a, in a wheat harvest, uh, the percentage of volume of the harvest that is actually wheat is probably no more than 20 How many did you keep? The ones I was supposed to. Now if you have a way you figured out to keep chaff in your church, that's the ungodly. You can't preach enough repentance to cause the ungodly to be something different. They're not wheat. And if you're afraid of of baptizing a few ungodly, then you're not going to get the wheat because you don't go into a field and pick the grains off the stalks. Now you might do that in church growth, but you don't do that in harvest. 
in harvest, you just go reap the sheaves and then you've got a process for the, for the separation. But because we're so afraid of what our brothers are going to think about us, if we have a hundred soul revival and keep twenty, which is exactly scriptural principle, both in net fishing and in wheat harvesting, we stay in this church group idea where we, we, we have to qualify. Now, I'd like for you to fill out this uh, application for becoming a part of church because if you come and leave, you're going to embarrass me as the preacher. Somebody's going to think we're falsifying the result. Ooh, Lord. Brother Dylan is broke, so better fix it. <laughs> so, how do you have an end time harvest? How do you get your land healed? The way you get your land healed is to build it on a foundation of forgiven sin. What's that called? Revival. Revival has nothing to do with the lost. Zero zip, nothing to do directly with the lost. Revival is the people of God getting rid of their sin and living in a forgiven condition. Revival is backsliders coming back to God. Revival is carnal saints getting spiritual. It is the uncommitted getting committed. That will not affect your Sunday school attendance very much. Revival does not affect your Sunday school attendance very much. But it is the foundation if you want end time harvest. If you try to build end time harvest on a foundation of an unrevived church, you can't sustain it. You can't have it. It won't work. You can't have it. you got to have revival. Which means you're going to go through periods of time, you're going to be preaching against sin. You're going to be digging deep. You're going to hear teaching like we heard today. What is the Lord trying to do here? He's trying to revive some of us. He's trying to get us to a place where we're living in a forgiven condition. Where it is our, our custom and habit of life to be living in a forgiven condition. That's revival. And you build end time harvest on revival. Well, what do you build revival on? You build revival on, then what I hear from heaven. Now, this is operative faith. One half of faith is, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. So one half of faith is the confidence that I can hear from God. But that's only half of operative faith. The other half of operative faith is what the man of God preached today is, Confidence that God hears me. The reason this electricity works is because there's a positive and a negative. There's a two-way flow in that circuit. Without it, there's no power. I don't care how much juice is on the other side of the positive wire. If there's a break in the wire that flows back to the source, there's no current, there's nothing happening. I don't care how well you hear from God, if you're lacking confidence that God hears from you, nothing happens. Can't have revival unless it's built on the foundation of operative faith. Operative faith is 
I hear from God, God hears from me. That's operative faith. What is the foundation for operative faith? What is it that keeps us from knowing we can hear from God and that God hears from us? Not turn from our wicked ways. Not turn from our wicked ways. We get forgiven, but we're not changed. And, and, and you may want to debate this theologically, and I'd love to debate it with you theologically, because I think prove theologically. But the practice is even more confirming, and that is, if you and I aren't forgiven of stuff we haven't really repented of yet, then none of us go to heaven. Because I've asked God to forgive me for stuff that I really didn't want to do again, but I did before the day was over. You didn't repent. You're absolutely right, I didn't repent. I confessed. 1 John 1, 9 says that for the believer, the baptized believer, this is not a plan of salvation for the sinner. This is strictly for those who have been repented of their sins, been baptized in Jesus' name, filled with the Holy Ghost. This is only for those that are in Christ. If, you, if we say we don't have any sin, we make Him a liar. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I am forgiven of stuff I haven't really changed in me yet. But if I'm going to have operative faith, I've got to find a place in my life to change. God forgives me of stuff and forgives me of stuff and forgives me of stuff you say, well, there's a limit. Oh, yeah, I tell you the limit. Seventy times seven every day. He tells me to forgive my brother seventy times seven, and then he puts a, a different limitation on himself with me. No, 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 no. I'm not preaching in favor of sin. And the person that takes a stand and says, I don't believe that's right, just told us how much of a hypocrite you are. There's not one of us sitting here that doesn't need to repent of something every day. Because Jesus said it. Just look at the prayer He taught us to pray. So I'm forgiven of a lot of stuff I haven't changed yet. Well, of course, here's the problem. Because I'm forgiven and not changed, I am open to condemnation. And condemnation takes away my confidence. And that's what gives me enables me to know that God hears me. Because if I don't have any condemnation, then I have confidence toward God that He hears me. So the foundation of operative faith is to have turned from my wicked ways. Well, what is the foundation of true repentance? The foundation of true repentance is seek my face. That's fellowship. That's, a, that's walking with God. That really isn't specifically prayer. It is a walking with God throughout the day when you and Him are fellowshipping in the yoke together. Yeah. You're in the yoke together. Well, why is seeking my face the foundation of repentance? 
Because Paul said, Godly sorrow worketh repentance. And the, and the word godly there is actually the translation of two different Greek words. It is sorrow, and here's the word godly, toward God. When I have sorrow toward me because of my sin, or I have sorrow toward you because of my sin, the best I can hope for is forgiveness. When I sin and I've embarrassed myself, when I've sinned and I've hurt you, when I've sinned and, I've, and my sorrow has anything to do with anybody other than sorrow toward God, I cannot change and will not change. I can get forgiven. Repentance, which the Greek word there is change, change of direction, change of mind. Godly sorrow, worketh, the word worketh there means causes to be operative or become effective. It is sorrow toward God that causes change to operate. It's sorrow toward God that causes change to operate. I'm not going to have sorrow toward God if I'm not fellowshipping with God. Because as I'm in His presence throughout the day, as I'm talking to God and He's talking to me throughout the day, and I realize what my sin is doing to that fellowship, and I realize the harm that it does to God when I sin because it breaks fellowship with someone He paid such a high price to have fellowship with then I realize that, it, that my sin doesn't have anything to do with anybody else but God. So a David can pray this way against thee and thee only if I sin. It doesn't matter that I've ruined a woman's reputation, that I've caused her to have a baby that God killed, and I've caused a faithful soldier of mine to be killed to cover my sin, even though all of those people were damaged by that, and Amnon and Tamar and Absalom and all of those and everybody else that was affected by it, no matter what, who I was affected by my sin, short-term, long-term, major or minor, against thee and the only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. That revelation produces change, Brother Morgan. Nothing else. Nothing else. If I went out and committed adultery today, it would, it would devastate my life. It would, it would just destroy. My, my children would be devastated. There'd be no let down. My church would be devastated. And yet, the only prayer that will enable me to truly change where I don't go back to the adultery is against thee and the only in myself and done this evil in my sight. Because it doesn't matter how much I realize I've hurt myself or others, I cannot change. I can get forgiven. I can get forgiven. But I cannot change. Can't change. Because it's only sorrow toward God that worketh, causes to be operative or effective. Change. And that, that change, turning from our wicked ways, is built upon the foundation of seeking my faith. But why is it that we are carnal? And carnal is being simple. Carnal means I walk in my own flesh. I make my own decisions. 
Why am I carnal? I'm carnal. Why, why do I not seek the face of God? Because I don't pray. Notice there's a difference between prayer and seeking His face. The foundation of daily fellowship with God, I'm talking about throughout the day fellowship with God, is prayer. This prayer is a consistent, disciplined prayer life that has nothing to do with need or feeling. It is a consistent, disciplined prayer life that has nothing to do with need or feeling. When the book says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. The word first there is first in priority and sequence of time. So therefore, if I am to spend my day in the fellowship of Jesus, seeking His faith, I must build that fellowship on a disciplined, committed prayer life. That is prayed the first thing when I start my day. And if you're a night person, you don't get up at noon, fine. But you start your day with prayer. If you go to work at four, then you're going to have to get up and start your day with prayer. How long that is, that's between you and God. But I cannot fellowship with God throughout the day if I do not have a daily, disciplined, committed prayer. So the foundation of the end time harvest is living in a revived condition. The living in a revived, living in revival or in a revived condition is based upon operative faith. Operative faith is built on the foundation of change in my life. Change in my life is based upon fellowship with God. Fellowship with God throughout the day is built, built upon a daily disciplined committed prayer life. Now, Tell you how this came. I was sitting in a uh, manifest meeting in Liverpool, England, in June, and there was a move of God. Wow! So the Tony Bailey was preaching. He was preaching about prayer, and the Spirit of God was moving. People praying all over the place, and I'm trying to pray. And there's some barrier I couldn't break. I don't know what it was. I thought it was spirits, and so I started resisting spirits, and nothing happened. And I just pressed and pressed, and I couldn't get through. Pushing, pushing, pushing. I said, God, what's wrong with me? What is this? Well, just, just ten days before that meeting, I'd been in Florida at my mom and dad's place, and uh, my dad is almost 80, and his youngest brother is only three and a half years older than me. And, uh, and I said, uh, I, somehow I got on the subject of my grandfather. And I knew that my grandfather was an immoral man. But I also knew my grandfather was very self-sufficient. He was stubborn. And I said to my dad, now, I, I don't remember my grandfather. I was only 12 when he died. But uh, I know you and my uncle, very self-sufficient, very stubborn. And I said, here's my brother sitting here. My brother's two and a half years younger than me, and I'm 56. And I said, now, we are very 
self-sufficient and stubborn. And I have two sons, and one of them sitting here today, and they get characterized as they both is self-sufficient and stubborn. And I have a two-year-old grandson, at least he'll be two next month. And what characterizes him more than anything else is self-sufficient and stubborn. I said, now to my, I said to my dad, now, there's a pattern here, I think. There's five generations here, and the, the first and the last of those, there's only one sampling. But for the middle three generations, I have two samples each. And there are eight of us here that I have some personal knowledge of, and we all have the last name right. And we're all just alike. My mother, now this is, I shouldn't tell the story probably, but it's not the first thing I've told, I shouldn't. You know how mothers are. She uh, one day was of the opinion that uh, my mother-in-law was influencing my family more than her. She didn't know that neither one of them was influencing my family. And I said, Mother, uh, it's not just you I don't let run my life. I don't let Lou live my life either. I don't let Alistair run my life. That's my wife. I said, it takes every bit of effort I've got just to let God have a shot at running my life. So, I'm sitting there in this meeting. God moving. And I'm trying to pray. I'm trying hard to pray. And I'm, I'm resisting against something. And I've come to the conclusion it's not devil. And then this little conversation with my dad comes back to my And I said, what am I resisting? God's self-sufficiency? He said, no, I've got a more scriptural name than self-sufficiency. I said, well, Lord, what is that? He said, pride. The Lord's real gentle with me. And I saw myself in this membrane of, of pride, self-sufficiency. Because you see, pride is not arrogance. That's a different word. Pride is not conceit. And I, in just a few moments, I'm going to demonstrate to you that the scriptural definition of pride is self-sufficiency. That's why we don't pray. The reason we don't have a daily consistent discipline prayer life and therefore fellowship with God throughout the day is not because of sin. That's what the devil tells us. That's why we spend so much time trying to be forgiven. You can't get free enough from sin to pray. Because the problem, the thing that keeps us from having this kind of prayer life is not sin. It's self-sufficiency. I only pray when I really need Him. Oh, no, I pray all. Hallelujah, hallelujah, glory to God. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, praise God. It's like we have church all the time. We have church and then we have church. And the, one, the real church we have is when 
there is a need and some urgency. And we pray, but the only real prayer we do is when there is a sense of need and urgency. But because we battle pride, self-sufficiency, we don't feel that very often. So we don't really pray very much, do we? This is what the Lord said about me. I'm, I can't really put that on you. This is what He said about me. He said, it's your self-sufficiency. My Word says without you, without me, you can do nothing. And you say you believe that with your mind, but your actions prove it. Your prayer proof proves you don't believe it. Because you get up and talk to me, but your mind is meant to get the direction. You watch the clock for the time. Talking tongues and not even focused on me. Sing songs in church and you're just going through the motions of getting it done and over with. And we want harvest, which is built upon revival, which is built upon our faith, which is built upon change, which is built upon pleasure, which is built upon this prayer. But there's something in the foundation that's messing the whole thing up. So I have seasons of harvest and seasons of revival. I have seasons when I change. I have seasons of offering faith. I have seasons of fellowship. I even pray once in a while. But none of this is consistent in my life. Because I didn't go far back enough back and deal with the real issue. The real issue is Suit I care about the one that uh, if it gets trashed, I'm not worried about it. That's just me. That doesn't make you be right, you're wrong. I'm just saying that's just me. I can do whatever I want to. I can walk in any gospel. I can walk in that gospel across the street from a hotel, pile any club in that place I want. 32 years of gospel. Again. And the more I'm blessed, the more being proportionate. Would you please, would you go to James chapter 4? We're going to give you the scriptural definition of humble himself. James chapter 4, we'll start with verse 4. You adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that friendship of the world is in you? When I quit reading, just keep going until I take it out I know you not that friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever, therefore, we'll go back on <laughs> All right. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Thank you. All right. Do you think that the Scripture saith in vain that the Spirit dwelleth, that the Spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But He giveth more grace. Wherefore He saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves. Here's, now we're going to have a definition of humbling yourself. 
We're going to have a scriptural definition of what it means to have a life where you're humble so that you can have a daily discipline prayer life, so that you can have fellowship with God, which will enable you to have change in your life, which will cause your faith to be operative so that you can have revival and produce an end-time harvest. Okay? Submit yourself, therefore, to God, which means if I'm self-sufficient, I'm not submitted to God. God is there to help me do my deed. I come up with good messages to preach and ask Him to bless them and rather than find out what He wants to say. Not submit to God. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and He will flee from you. You see, here's the problem. If I don't submit to God, I'm also automatically not resisting the devil. That means the stuff that comes through my mind, whatever it is, it doesn't matter whether it's lust, sexual lust, it can be any kind of lust. Lust for that new suit, I see. Lust for a new car. Lust for a vacation. Lust for a new house. Lust for the second helping of food. I don't have any ability to resist. Satan, because I haven't submitted to God. Because without Him I can do nothing. I can't do one without the other. Is this the devil? He will flee from you. Draw nigh to God. He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of God, and He shall lift you up. You must not bear That is the definition, according to James, of what humbling yourself before God. So I humble myself before God, or I give up my self-sufficiency, which then produces for me the ability, or that's the foundation that enables me to have a daily consistent disciplined prayer life, which then gives me the foundation for seeking the face of God and fellowship with Him today, which then, in His presence, produces change or works change in my life, which then causes my faith to be operative so that we can then have revival, which will then allow us to have in that heart. No wonder we have a church going through. So, <laughs> that's right. First Peter chapter 5, if you would please, and let's read, starting with, let's just drive our scores through it. Uh, and when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Next verse. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, giveth grace to the humble. And here is Peter's definition of a person who is humbling themselves before I'll go back to verse 5. I'm sorry. 6. Humble yourselves, brethren. Casting all your care upon Him. For He careth for you. Now, this verse right here is the exact 
opposite condition of self-sufficiency. That's the, that's the opposite. That is the def, that's the simplest definition of biblical humility you'll find in a book right there. Humility is not being down in the mouth. Humility is not somebody coming up to you and saying, that was, that was a great message and you said, oh, it was, it was really nothing. That's not humility. That's pride in another skirt. True humility is casting all your care upon Him for He cares for you. If I have that kind of humility, do you think I'll have a problem with daily discipline prayer life? In fact, you know what my problem will be in my daily discipline prayer life? I won't have enough time to talk to Him about everything I care about. Casting all your care. That's what prayer is supposed to be. Everything I care about. I'm releasing it to Him. Why? Because until I release all I care about to Him, He can't release to me all He cares about. You missed that one. You missed that one. You missed that one. Until I release all, everything I care about to Him, He will not trust me with what He cares about. He cannot put on me greater anything more than I can bear. And while I'm full of my cares and my problems and my concerns and my hurts and my difficulties and my pressure, He will not put His burden on me. That's why Matthew 11 verse 28 says, Come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden. That is the consequences of pride. That's when you are self-sufficient, you are going to labor and be heavy laden. Come unto me, all you that labor are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me that I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. In my life, the truest indication of my pride is when I'm feeling pressure over. Any pressure. It is not the will of God for me to live under pressure. Are you either? How can I have rest for my soul and have internal life pressure? I can't have it. It's impossible. It's impossible. It's impossible. All pressure that God allows us to walk through is supposed to be external pressure that He simply did to Him. When I internalize pressure, it's called stress. It is proof that I'm walking in my own strength and wisdom and sufficiency. And then last but not least, 2 Corinthians 7, 14. The last self-sufficiency or giving up your self-sufficiency is built on this foundation. This is the last one. Uh, 2 Corinthians Chronicles, I said Corinthians, I'm sorry. Second Chronicles. If my people, which are called by my name, the foundation of giving up my self-sufficiency, of humbling myself, is built upon the acknowledgement that I don't belong to me anymore. 
I'm indelibly stamped with his ownership. His love. I'm not mine. I don't own me. I'm not in competition to be on the to be on any program, to be a part of any speaking engagement. I'm not I'm not in competition with any brother in the Sunday school ranking. I'm not in competition with any brother getting elected to any office. I don't belong on me. I don't belong me to me. I surrender me to God wherever He wants me. I'm going. Whatever He wants me to do, I'll do. Whatever He door He doesn't open, so be it. So be it. No pressure. No pressure. There's no pressure. You cannot have revival and end time harvest built upon a life that's constantly full of pressure. Cannot do it. Not possible to do it. Cannot, cannot be done. Cannot be done. I've got to get a revelation that I don't that is the foundation for releasing my life to Him. Because if I'm not mine, I'm His. If they care of it. So all of my problems are really His problems. All of my difficulties are really His. He can do with me what He chooses. That gives me the foundation for a daily discipline prayer life. Which gives me the foundation for fellowshipping with God throughout the day. Which gives me the foundation for changing in my life instead of just giving which gives me foundation to be free from condemnation so my faith operates. I hear from God, God hears from me, which gives me the foundation to live in a forgiven condition, which is revival, which allows me to have a healed land of harvest. This is our calling, brethren. Every time we step in the pulpit, we're supposed to be working on this. Just just for one moment, if you go back to verse 13, 2 Chronicles 7, 13. If you have any question how interested God is in getting us started in the right process, the previous verse says, verse 13, If I shut up heaven, let there be no rain. Or if I command the locusts to devour the land. Or if I send pestilence among them. What are those things intended to do? Prove to you that you're not The Lord says, I cannot give you a revival that there's not a prayer life, a foundation of prayer and fellowship with me that can support it. And I'm so intent, I'm so intent to create in you this kind of prayer life and remove the hindrance of that prayer life. I will do whatever I've got to do in my people's lives to bring them to a place that their self-sufficiency can no longer suffice. You see, here's the problem. Paul prayed three times, take this thorn. The Lord said, my grace is sufficient. The problem with self-sufficiency is it's idolatry. Here's why. If, grace, if His grace is sufficient, and I'm saved by grace, but I become self-sufficient. I have substituted self for grace. And I'm now my own Savior. If His grace is sufficient, and grace saves me, 
And if I am self-sufficient, I have substituted self for grace. And I'm now my own Savior. And every care I do not bring to Him is an area of my life I'm playing God in. That's why God resists pride. That's why God resists self-sufficiency with these extreme measures. Because He cannot allow His people to go through their lives, running their own lives, doing their own things. When He said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. If you're not, if you're not, if you're alive, if you're not feeling my strength and you're under pressure and stress, it's because you're doing it yourself. And the foundation you've built cannot support what He's promised. How many promises that God has made us cannot come to pass or cannot be sustained in our lives because we do not have a foundation in our lives sufficient to hold up what He's building. I haven't ministered this today to condemn you. This is, this is to give you direction, not to challenge you. This stuff isn't true in my life yet. I'm working on this stuff, Brother Dylan. I'm working on 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm working on, I'm working on 2 Chronicles 7, 14. This, I'm in the process. I said at the beginning, salvation and growth in God is not an event. It's a process. It's a process. This is not intended to condemn you, to make you feel like you're behind. This is intended to give you answers and direction so you can know what to do about it. So you can cooperate with God. Because see, God's doing this stuff in your life. God's working this stuff in your life. Some of us are going through heaven being shut up. There no, being no rain in our lives. Some of us are going through the pestilence being in the land. Some of us are going through the locusts devouring in our lives. And we don't know what God's trying to do. God's just simply trying to say, Self can't save you. Only my grace can but my grace will not impose itself on you. You've got to give it up. Give up self. It doesn't matter how white your head, how gray the temple, how bald the palate doesn't matter how many years you've been living for God. If God's left you alive on this earth to, to this moment, He still has a place and a purpose for you. There's still room for growth. There's still some place to go. There's, God still has a plan for your life. doesn't matter how young you are, how inexperienced you are. God's working. God's got a plan for you. God's doing something in your life. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The love of our Heavenly Father demands that He do whatever's necessary. To prove to us that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot solve our own problems. Because self-sufficiency in our lives causes everything else to be weakened. So that it doesn't function like 
God planted. So that God's plan and purpose cannot be fulfilled in our lives. Self-sufficiency. Self-promotion. Self-will. In Jesus' name, He's inviting us to the yoke today. He's wanting us to learn of Him that He's meek and lowly. He's gentle and humble. He's humble. It sounds ridiculous that you say God is humble, except in this biblical context. He's humble because He's relying upon Himself, because He's God. But He's gentle. He cares about us. He doesn't want you under stress. You frustrated, doesn't want you under pressure. If you're frustrated, condemned, or under pressure, the loving Father is trying to get your attention and say, You're not trusting me. You're not surrendering it all to me. You're not surrendering it to me. You're not letting me have it. You're not dependent upon me. I want you to depend on me. I want you to depend on me. That's what the Spirit is whispering in this place right now in your heart and mind. I want you to trust me. I want you to depend on me. I want you to know that I'm there for you. I won't fail you. I won't forsake you. I won't let you down. Yea, I'm going to let you walk through some difficult times. But it's only to perfect you. It's only to add these things in your life. It's only to bring these things about. It's only to cause them to abound because it's my plan and purpose. But trust me. Trust me. Trust me. My God, my God, my God, my God. Hallelujah. When you try to pray and you can't pray, it's not the devil you're pressing against. When you try to pray and you can't pray, it's not sin. It's the devil that tells you it's your sin that's keeping you from praying. I've got to pray to be able to get forgiven. If I can't pray, how can I get forgiven? It's not your sin that's keeping you from praying. It's not your failures that are keeping you from praying. In fact, God sets up failure in our lives so we will pray. Because when I'm self-sufficient, the only way He can cause me to know I can't trust myself is failure. No, none of these things are keeping me from praying. None of these things are keeping me from fellowshipping with God. It's my self-sufficiency. It keeps me from prayer. It's keeping me from trusting God. Oh, it's keeping me from change. I want to change. Oh, I want. To, I believe those verses are true. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Be all old. All things become new. I'm not there yet. I wish I could tell you I'm there. I'm not there yet. But I believe I can get there. But I can't get there through my own efforts. I can't get there through my own wisdom. I can't get there through my own sufficiency. I've got to give me up to Jesus. Because you see, it's really not giving me up. If my people, which are called by my name, it's just acknowledging who I really belong to. It's just acknowledging whose I really am. 
It's not giving up anything. I didn't have anything to give up. He redeemed me from bondage to sin. I don't have a life to give up. I just think I do. I don't have time to sacrifice. I just think I do. I don't have strength to trust Him. I just think I do. I want harvest, don't you? Gotta have revival to have harvest. A revival, don't you? Gotta have operative faith to have revival. I want operative faith, don't you? Gotta have true repentance in your life change to have operative faith. I want operative, I, I want change in my life, don't you? I gotta spend time with Jesus to change. I want to spend time with Jesus, don't you? I've got to have a consistent daily disciplined prayer life. I want to have a daily disciplined, consistent prayer life, don't you? I've got to give up my self-sufficiency to have it. I want to give up my self-sufficiency, don't you? I have to acknowledge whose I am and whose God and who's in control to give it up. Come on, let's go just a little farther. I'm submitted to Brother Dylan. I'm ready to give this up whenever he's there. I want to hear what God has to say through Brother Morgan. But let, let's let the Holy Ghost talk to us. Come on. Come on. I'm looking forward to the meal today. But if I have to miss the meal to hear what God is saying right now, what He said to us this morning, what He's saying right now, what He's going to say to us through Brother Morgan, if I have to miss the meal, fine. But I want to change. And I want to be a part of God's purpose. And I want to be a part of God's plan. I want vision and truth. I want vision and truth. I don't want just truth. I don't want just vision. I want vision and truth. Many of the people that have left us and go charismatic, they sold out truth for vision. It's not one or the other. I need both. I need truth and vision to be saved. It's not a choice between truth and vision. I got to have truth and vision to be saved. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You see, it really is what Paul prayed. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from myself? That's what he said. Who shall deliver me from myself? I've tried to overcome me for years, but I can't get past me. I don't have to get past me. I'm owned by somebody else. I just need to acknowledge I'm owned by somebody else. And that then His power can help me to get past me. My God. My God, my God, my God, my God, my God, my God. That's why the Bible says in everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. 
Because as a child of God, there's absolutely nothing that happens in my life that's, that's an accident. In a sinner's life, who's not submitted to God, there are things that happen that are by chance, maybe, that God doesn't cause because God's not obligated. But I'm a child of God. There's nothing that happens in my life by accident. Therefore, rather than resenting it, I need to thank God for it because I need those things that convince me continually. I can't save myself. Only His grace is sufficient. Only His grace is sufficient. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. 